You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. In mid-June, I spoke with Michelle Kuo and Albert Wu about their weekly newsletter, Abroad in Apple Road. They began writing it in 2020 as a way to keep in touch with people during the pandemic. We also spoke about the shooting at the Irvine Taiwanese Presbyterian Church, which had happened a month before on May 15th. Michelle is a social activist, lawyer, teacher, and writer. She is an associate professor at the American University of Paris in History, Law, and Society, and a visiting associate professor at National Taiwan University. Albert is a historian and an associate research fellow at the Institute of History and Philology, Academia Sinica. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATOA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATOA was founded in 1988, and its mission is, one, to evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity, two, to oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality, three, to fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs, four, to contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan, five, to reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NADWA, visit their website, www.natwa.com. Without further ado, here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having us, Felicia. Thank you, Felicia. We're such fans. And that voice in the Thank background you. is our two-year-old trying to <laughs> Yes, welcome, Phoebe. It's a it's a family affair. Thank you so much. I really admire what you guys are doing too. You know, your newsletter, Broad and Ample Road. And I actually had wanted to have you guys on to talk about that. And then in the midst of trying to coordinate things, unfortunately, the shooting at the Irvine Taiwanese Presbyterian Church happened. So I wanted to talk about that also since it's been on a lot of our hearts and minds. Let's start with your newsletter, A Broad and Ample Road. I see that on your website you describe it as based in Taiwan, a newsletter is about history, politics, justice, and law. More broadly, though, we're interested in forms of resistance, including the playful and soulful kinds. So I also discovered that the name of your newsletter <laughs> a Broad and Ample Road is a quote from the book seven of Paradise Lost by poet John Milton. And I'm curious to know how and why did you decide on this as the name of your newsletter and what meaning does it personally have for you? Well, um, first of all, we're terrible at names of things. <laughs> so many we've written many articles and reviews of, you know, TV shows together like Breaking Bad and coming up with names is just so excruciating for us. If you hate the name of our newsletter, to the listeners out there, we don't blame you. But we actually like this one. <laughs> no, it's interesting. Yeah, I'm wondering what what it is that appealed to you about it. Is there a story there or just you just have a hard time naming so you just like the quote? <laughs> <laughs> Well, one of the first things we actually the first piece we ever wrote together uh, was a review of Breaking Bad, uh, the TV show, by uh, for the Los Angeles Review of Books, and the angle for that show uh, for that review was that we were situating the Walter White character as sort of uh, a modern retelling of the Paradise Lost story of, of Satan, uh, okay. who preferred to rule in hell rather than be a servant in heaven okay and milton's always been both of our one of our favorite favorite poets and um so it was sort of the first thing that we did when we wrote together and part of the reason for the newsletter was that we wanted to write together again because we hadn't michelle and i had both come out with books independently and we hadn't mm -hmm. really sort of worked together mm -hmm. and so we thought oh okay maybe we'll look at something in Milton and we were just sort of flipping through Milton and it's like, Oh, broad and ample, broad and ample road. That seems, that seems, that seems like a, our vibe. How long have you had this newsletter? Hmm. 
Almost two years now. Yeah, we started it in around October. Yeah, yeah so almost two years. Mm-hmm. We started it during the idea came about during the lockdown. Oh, okay. Uh, the first lockdown, we were in France. Right. In uh, sort of April of 2020. Okay. And we were thinking of, oh, well, one, we hadn't read together in a while, so we were thinking mm-hmm. of ways to write together. Um, we had somehow come across Substack as a platform. Now I know Substack sort of blown up, but at yeah. the time there weren't that many people. Yeah, the, the quote is that every asshole has a Substack, but when we started it, every asshole did not have a Substack. So. <laughs> there you go. Maybe you could put that on your website. I know, or you judge. Before every asshole has a Substack. Uh, that's so funny. <laughs> um, thanks, Felicia. I like that. Uh, <laughs> Um, and when it started, I think we genuinely were trying to just connect with old friends. I connected with my old uh, middle school classmate who started to read our newsletter. Um, it's always been totally free, so there's no content mm-hmm. behind a paywall. Mm-hmm. And we wanted a chance to memorialize some of the conversations we were having in yeah. our classrooms. And we had started at that time because I think... I think all of us had this experience where the, where the pandemic forced us to be creative about our conversations. And so we're reaching yeah. out and as with, you know, this podcast and everywhere. So we had our formerly incarcerated classmates at San Quentin prison talk to our class because we were like, why not? Yeah. Why would we have to think about a plane ticket to pay for this person when sure. everybody, you know, so then we we're like, oh, well, how do we, one of our, our first Substack post um, substantial one was, a conversation with somebody who had just spoken to our class who had um, served over 20 years in prison for mm-hmm. a nonviolent mm-hmm. robbery under mm-hmm. a three strikes law in California is just this radiant student who, um, you know, who whose first act of freedom on his first day of getting out was eating an orange, which he hadn't eaten at all in prison. Wow. And it was so exciting for our students to be able to talk to somebody mm-hmm. who shared so, um, openly about his experiences mm-hmm. and we we're like well mm-hmm. is that experience just gone how do we get it written down yeah and then and then more lightly i think albert just hadn't really written about sports or music or jazz mm-hmm. things he cared mm-hmm. a lot about mm-hmm. and my grandma happened to pass away right around that time so if it hadn't mm-hmm. been for the news that i wouldn't have gotten to write a eulogy for her right. so all the, there's just this confluence of factors that made it really meaningful during that time yeah, yeah, it's really interesting, and you have quite a diversity of topics, and um, I thought I, I did uh, take a look at a few of your articles, and I saw, um, like, the piece, The Battle for the Hearts and Minds, the dive into how Taiwan's pro-China media depicts the Ukraine and Russia. I found that interesting because I, I love that line when you guys wrote that you watched about four hours of uh, pro China media and that you will never get those four hours of your lives back. <laughs> that was interesting. Um, it was bad. It was, I, I yeah. mean, no way around yeah. it. It was just bad. <laughs> just, that's, I mean, like you realize how good they are at media too, because they just yeah. are totally manipulating your emotions. And so, you know, even though I was you know, going in sort of trying to be objective, I, I was also getting mad. <laughs> you're like oh that kind of makes sense <laughs> so it, it's also really interesting to me um how you write together i have actually co-authored a book with somebody so i've had this experience of having um a writing partner but i think like a lot of people are probably curious like how does this work because writing is such a solitary thing right and to write together that's pretty unique so i'm curious about that um like, how do you decide, obviously, some of the articles are written together and some of them are written separately. So how do you decide what you write together in the first place? What what pieces you write together? Well, just to backtrack, I love this question because people often ask this. So they're so curious um, how it works. And, and they say this, too. Well, how does that work? Because writing is solitary. And I always tell people writing isn't as solitary as you think. And I always ask like an audience of people when I talk about my book or whatever, like, how many of you want to write a book? How many of you want to write a book? And almost everybody, you know, tentatively raises their hand. Mm-hmm. And then I ask, how many of you feel like one reason you're not writing it is because you feel alone and 
lot of people raise their hand. I'm like, you're not alone. If you have a friend who you trust, show them the writing. Ask them, where does it sound like me? Where does it sound like my voice? And your friend will tell you. Your friend will tell you, this sounds like you. This is funny you. This is sarcastic you. This is you finally being vulnerable. Cut this. This is boring. You're never alone writing. You shouldn't think of it as a solitary affair, even though, of course, the raw material is created when you're, is, is best when you're alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and the editing process is, is, is fundamentally not solitary. Um, it's collaborative. Uh, mm-hmm. So a person responding to the writing to you. And so I think for some people are like, well, how can, how can you write together when, uh, you know, are you worried about one person getting credit? And I guess it is helpful to be in a, in a, in a good partnership because I don't mind giving Albert my good lines because I'm like, well, I guess, <laughs> I guess we wrote this together. But I think for, um, to get back to your question, you know, how do we decide which topics? I think we have to both be excited about it. So we both loved Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. We both loved Marilyn Robinson. Mm-hmm. All topics we've written about. We both hate pro-China media and it's shaped our lives mm-hmm. in many ways. Like my, mm-hmm. my family consumes it um, mm-hmm. and it shapes our lives in Taiwan. And then sometimes we then, and then we then often divide up a task. Like you do history, I do law. So we wrote right. about restorative justice in Taiwan and mm-hmm. he did the history part and I did the law part. And right. sometimes the bifurcation is just really easy. We are very different writers though. Um, mm-hmm. I remember when we first wrote together like 10 years ago, Albert was like, do you have an outline? I was like, an outline? What's an outline? <laughs> I'm like, but this is, I, when he cuts out a sentence, I'm like, but this is a beautiful sentence. He's like, it it's, like, it's not relevant. I'm like, oh, but you're killing a beautiful sentence. So it does help to be a little different as well. Yeah. yeah. Michelle, Michelle's a, she, Michelle's a notes writer. So she'll have a document oh. come in. It'll be like 20 pages. It's like, you know, we have to cut this down to like, a thousand words (laughs) but i mean just back to also how do we get to i mean we're sort of constantly talking it's it starts from you know dinner table conversation Mm -hmm. i mean like early on in our relationship it was like we'd go out to you know eat rotisserie chicken and fries (laughs) and and then have a conversation but then um and now it's more sort of on walks or um, as we're preparing dinner or Right. Um, doing right. chores. And then and then I think normally um, when something hits, we both know it. I mean, that we both have a sense that, oh, yeah, this is this is something we really need to write about. And and it's coming from multiple conversations. Michelle will have conversation with her friends, too, and then she'll, she'll bring back an idea. Just curious, like as a practical measure, like maybe one person will start and another one will pick up or whatever, or do, are there times that maybe you guys actually sit down together and actually literally write like on the computer together? Or? We used to do that. We used to sort of... Pre-child, maybe. Now we have yeah. no time. So now there might <laughs> sure, be a shared Google hard. Doc where one person is yeah. working on one topic and the sense. other person is working on another. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, or sometimes I just tape record Albert talking, or he tape record sure, me talking, yeah. and then we'd like figure, that. and we, or or if we have it cracked an ending, mm-hmm. we'll be like, well, what what do we really want to say? Or what is this? What's the point of this whole piece? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's true. When when something when a, a certain part of the piece isn't working, we'll sit down and then we'll go sure. line by line. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes voice recording. This is true for all writers, whether you're writing alone or collectively. It does help sometimes to just voice memo yeah, yourself. Because if you can't explain it, I realize yeah. to myself, if I can't explain it speaking, then yeah. the idea usually is really convoluted. Yeah, and so it's, it's helpful to just get your normal speaking voice out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's very interesting. If you guys ever have like a disagreement on things, how do you hash that? I guess that's that might actually be kind of a hard question to answer because that's I'm a, sure it depends on what the disagreement's about. Well, that's a great question. Let me think. I love conflict. As somebody who had parents who thought a lot. I, I, con- I shy con- away from conflict. Conflict so. is oh. love. So let me think. When have we disagreed about a piece? Uh, 
Oh, I guess there's not that much disagreement. No, no, there's, there was definitely a piece where I wrote something and Michelle was like, this ending is not working. I'm like, I agree, this isn't working, but you fix yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that, that became a joke between us. You fix it. That's her like, no, you fix it. <laughs> I think it helps to have one positive person in the relationship because I'm definitely yeah. the less positive person. So I get really yeah. despairing and I'm like, Let's give up. There's no point. And Albert's Aww. like, and so Albert is good at being like, no, this is there's something here. Let's keep going. Or, oh, yeah. Or if I send him crap, he won't say this is crap. But if he sends me crap, I'll be like, well, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> but no, of course there is no crap. That's that's. But but in, in terms it's, of there's just rough draft, which is always crap. I yes. guess we're, we're whoever whoever's writing in I the th- world. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of disagreements, we always work through it line by line. And then eventually yeah. we'll, we'll come to something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's never any abstract disagreement. It's always about the line in front of you. I yeah. think it's helpful that we generally agree with each other ideologically, I think. Yeah, like you said, if it's something abstract or it's a little more complicated, that's harder to resolve. How often do you guys publish new articles? I don't know if you guys have schedule in mind or like a frequency plan to have new things published on your newsletter. Yeah, our schedule is normally uh, once a week. Uh, sometimes, and then once a week on the Chinese side. So uh, for a while we were doing um, one Chinese translation and or one Chinese article and then one English articles. And the Chinese article would normally come out Thursday and the English article on Sundays. Mm-hmm. And um, the best part of the newsletter, honestly, has been connecting with readers uh, and just readers of all different uh, walks of life, but also uh, d- different people from different countries, people of different ethnicities. And I think in particular, Michelle's uh, sort of very vulnerable post about moving to Taiwan really mm-hmm. resonated with a lot of people mm-hmm. in terms of mm-hmm. thinking about, um, you know, career, family, but also uh, things like meritocracy, um, one sense of being an Asian American, you know, so yeah, people wrote in really, I mean, that's been the best part of just sort of connecting with all different types of people about, about their experiences. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I read that piece. I really relate to that. It's very interesting um, being in Asian America and the whole going back to Asia and all that. I did spend like, what was it? Six or seven years in Taiwan. Yeah. A lot of those thoughts had crossed my mind, although it was my decision to go back to Taiwan because I've been involved so much with Taiwanese American issues and um, Taiwan that I felt it was important for me to spend some time in Taiwan. It's very interesting. Like the thing about your article about um, the whole thing about how the people who can't make it are the ones that go back to Asia. I don't think that's, I don't, think that's the case anymore um i think that there was a perception like that um yeah very much so in the past but i don't see it that way now because i think there's a lot of different opportunities i think that people who are you know more multi-talented and multilingual are actually the ones that could flourish there so i i don't see it that way um, i think if you have a lot of different talents and things that maybe those are the people that could flourish more so in Asia or Taiwan. Um, so that's great. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that speaks well to our world now, right? Where there isn't yeah. such a hierarchy. Um, yeah. Just for listeners, Felicia's referencing the piece I wrote that went somewhat viral, which was about how um, Albert and I were moving to Taiwan. And for my parents' generation, there was a perception that um, among Asian immigrants, that if you go back, you're a quote unquote loser. You couldn't hack it in the US. You couldn't assimilate. You couldn't get a job. And I remember that vaguely being the background. Like, oh, it's like a big deal when somebody in the Taiwanese Chinese community went back to Taiwan. Mm -hmm. It meant that they couldn't I remember that there was this one person who had lost his job and so he was going to go back. And mm. um, and now that's absolutely, I mean, I think that's changed. And I, I see that in my college students too. There's such curiosity and desire. It's much more hip now to want to go to Korea or Japan. It's Interestingly, it's the East Asian countries that have economically flourished. It's less so. Um, the only ones who go back to 
um, Vietnam or uh, Thailand, usually it's because they're interested in social justice issues. It's not. Yeah. But just to push back a little bit, I still think that among yes. my like Ivy League cohort, like there isn't anybody I know who goes to Taiwan. They're like busy being doctors, hedge fund okay. people, corporate sure. people, like highly mm-hmm. quote unquote mm-hmm. successful. And my my I think my mother like thinks of those people who are working at Google as like you know, and she tells me about Taiwanese people whose kids go to the U.S. and work at Google, and she clearly mm-hmm. thinks there's something mm-hmm. slightly strange about me going and so I mean obviously she's my one sample set but I suspect there's a lot of Taiwanese people whether in the U.S. or in Taiwan who think the best job to get is at Google, Facebook, Silicon Valley that's still a wide perception. Wow but thank god but if you're going to Taiwan to (laughs) that's not all there is I mean I know thank god I know (laughs) no offense the world is uh would not be such an interesting place I mean yeah I mean it's all your perception and it's like what is uh, personally rewarding to you. I've never been a person that wants to be in a corporate framework or in a traditional path, so don't talk to me about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you gave us a space to talk about it. I mean, we're really we're really proud of it. I feel like I know authentic, the word authentic has been corporatized, but I feel like it's pretty authentic. Um, yeah, definitely. I feel we've really shared a journey. And like Albert said, the, the readers are just wonderful. They're from all over the world. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of people also who connected uh, with their pieces about moving. Also, they connected with Catherine Cho's piece about learning Mandarin and Taiwanese. Mm-hmm. Like, people are on these individual language journeys of themselves, like teaching mm-hmm. themselves. And I think it's so interesting that, 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 that this kind of turn towards heritage language fills some kind of political or spiritual despair in this time of like climate change and gun violence mm-hmm. and polarization. Mm-hmm. There's some way that like valuing the mother tongue that you heard when you were young uh, connects oh, you to, to the past or bah. to yourself um, or makes you whole. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I don't know what else, Albert. Yeah, I mean, we love to hear from readers uh, uh, if they have suggestions about where the newsletter, how the the direction of the newsletter. I mean, we we sort of have this grant from Substack yeah. that, that uh, runs out after this year, but we'd like okay. to continue. Mm-hmm. Um, and the grant basically was this idea. So the grant allowed us to um, commission translations and sort of we, our our vision was this idea that it would be a, a truly bilingual. Yeah, um, that's great. Yeah, um, and we're I mean we're still committed to that vision, but we're also realizing uh, how labor intensive <laughs> it is, and just for two, just with the two of us, and yeah, um, both of us. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, just even writing something once a week is a lot, but then uh, having it bilingual. So, are all of your articles in English also written in Chinese like is it vice versa like there there's an English and a Chinese version for all of your articles uh, not every single article so okay. far but mm-hmm. what what one of the great gifts of um, being back in Taiwan um, so Michelle's uh, first book her her, her book uh, reading with Patrick yes was translated into Chinese that's great and um, she had this really wonderful Chinese language editor uh-huh. who uh, basically has connections to some of the best translators. Oh, that's excellent. Um, and they're oh, all... Is that how you met Isabel? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, just these really wonderful, uh, smart translators who are working at a really high level. And... Mm-hmm. and um, she basically has helped put us in, in touch with, 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 with this sort of group of translators and mm-hmm. people working in the translation sphere. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so, so it's just been really wonderful to, to, yeah. to work with them and, and sort of see, uh, see them sort of in action. And it, uh, I mean, it's just so gratifying for me too to, to see 
you know, these, these pieces translated into this beautiful, beautiful Chinese. Not long after I had reached out to Michelle and Albert about being interviewed on Talking Taiwan, the shooting at the Irvine Taiwanese Presbyterian Church happened. So we spoke about that too. On May 15th, David Cho, the 68-year-old gunman, opened fire on a luncheon for members of the Irvine Taiwanese Presbyterian Church in Laguna Woods. He fatally shot Dr. John Cheng and injured five others. There was some confusion about Cho's identity. Was he Chinese or Taiwanese? The shooting was classified as a hate crime against Taiwanese since the government had expressed hatred for Taiwanese people and that Taiwan should not be independent from China. As I mentioned before, not long after I reached out to you for the interview, the shooting at the Irvine Taiwanese Presbyterian Church happened on uh, May 15th. And um, as we know, one person was killed, five were wounded. And it's very interesting as the details were emerging about the gunman, uh, David Cho. There was a lot of confusion initially as to whether he was Chinese or Taiwanese. That in itself is a really complex question, right? And then this term, the terminology that a lot of pe Taiwanese people are familiar with, the whole uh, Weishun Ren and Bunshun Ren. So I wanted to talk about that. I've often thought about this, what the experience of these two groups or the people that are fall under these labels, what their experiences have been like and why there has been this conflict that we saw played out in the shooting. I'm not even sure where to begin with this. Maybe we can just talk about like why the confusion with the whole Chinese-Taiwanese thing. It's like even a whole controversy whether to call him Taiwanese because it turns out he was born in Taiwan and later immigrated to the U.S. But Some people have pointed out that it's not entirely accurate to call him Taiwanese. Arguably, he wouldn't call himself Taiwanese because obviously he had an issue with Taiwan independence and Taiwanese identity, which is why this shooting happened. Right. I mean, that, that seems to be the, the main crux of it, right, which is his, his own self-identification. And um, I mean, based on um, what, what I know, I mean, based on what I've read so far, he hasn't really... Nobody's really talked to him since the since the killings, right? So, but I mean, a lot of this is inference based on his own writings, his his anti-Taiwanese independence uh, screeds, and all these sorts of things. Um, so we assume that he wouldn't identify as Taiwanese, but who knows? I mean, sometimes uh, you you ask some people who are Waisung and they say, "Oh, I'm both Chinese and Taiwanese." Mm -hmm. So right, so, that's true. So, um, so it depends on, uh, so, but, but more broadly, I think it, uh, it is, it is on the side of people who have been longstanding supporters of a certain, uh, Taiwanese identity feeling like, or not feeling, but that this is a, an obvious assault on that, uh, uh, definition of Taiwanese identity, right? which is connected to, um, both the political project of independence, but also um, a broader range of issues such as human rights, which is, you know, connected to the Taiwanese Presbyterian Church, the, the longstanding sort of defense of human rights, um, but also a, a, all a whole slew of cultural and um, social set of issues that go along with that political agenda, right? So. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that's interesting from both angles. Yeah, we don't, we haven't heard from him, like what he, how he would identify himself. But then, yeah, then there's also the reaction from the Taiwanese community that they wouldn't, most, a lot of people may not consider him Taiwanese. And then the whole thing about the assault on the Taiwanese Presbyterian Church. To learn more about the Presbyterian Church in Taiwan, and its connections to human rights and the Taiwan independence movement, Albert recommended a Hearts in Taiwan podcast episode that will include it in the related links section of this episode. 
We'll also include a link to a recent interview with Dr. Wilma Walsh about her work with the Presbyterian Church in Taiwan. We've got a special announcement for you. On November 5th at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we're going to be hosting a special live online event for you to meet master cartoonist Guy Gilchrist, who is best known for drawing the Muppets comic strip. Register for the event at TalkingTaiwan.com forward slash news. Guy is going to be doing what he does best, drawing your favorite classic cartoon characters, Looney Tunes, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Disney, or even Sesame Street. He'll demonstrate how you can draw a cartoon character yourself. The best part is that Guy is generously offered to donate all of his drawings from that night. If you want a chance to win, just make a donation of $25 or more on Talking Taiwan's GoFundMe page. I wanted to also talk about this terminology, the Weissenren and Bunsenren, right? Like these are just the literal translation, Weissenren, somebody that's born the outsider. Maybe you can give a better translation than me. Yeah, well, the, the, the middle, I mean, you're right. The, the, the key term is the Wei or, mm-hmm. or the Bun, like outside or inside. But the, the second uh, character, Sung, is... Yes. Uh, refers to Taiwan as a province. And so, so that, that's also uh, problematic now because, you know, uh, Taiwan, the, the institution of the Sung doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, it's, in, certain, in certain ways, it, in certain weird bureaucratic situations, it does. But I mean, but uh, the, the term refers to a time when people, the, the, the central administration assumed that Taiwan was just mm-hmm. a province of China. And this yeah. is the, the Chinese nationalists, right? So the, mm-hmm. the ROC government mm-hmm. assumed that uh, Taiwan was just a son, just as Fujian or... Oh, uh, yeah, that's my poor Ch- Chinese. I do remember um, going back to Taiwan and seeing the character Sheng on um, the license plates of scooters and things and just being like, that's just so wrong. That's like... Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, when we were growing up, there was still a really important position called the the, the Shenzha. So the, yeah. the provincial governor, yeah, yeah. Um, and they he would you know within the ROC uh, constitution up until a certain point, the Shenzhong had just as much power as the premier. Um, so, mm-hmm. so um, you know these were extremely powerful institutions. And mm-hmm. but but right the, the 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 key point is somebody who's inside or outside. And just very briefly, like the those the Benshanren are referring to Han Chinese people basically who have been in Taiwan since the 16th, 17th and mm-hmm. 17th century. So mm-hmm. it's sort of the, uh, what, what we consider the first wave of Han, major Han um, mm-hmm. settlement. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, you know, sort of the, the Han people who kicked out the, the Dutch in, in the late 1600s. And then, and, and that also leaves out the indigenous people, right? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So that's that's all, that's all. It's 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 very problematic. Yeah. Um, and and Wai are uh, basically the two million or so refugees who uh, who flooded into the country after I mean, starting in 1947 uh, or starting after 1945. But then, really accelerating uh, when the nationalists were on the brink of defeat in 1949. Yeah, I've also heard this term, the 49ers, like maybe to uh, to pick something like a little bit more neutral to refer to the people that came over with uh, Chiang Kai-shek and uh, a lot of the military personnel to talk to refer to them as the 49ers or descendants of the 49ers <laughs> yeah so i mean the 49. so the the i mean now we know i mean the there's this new york times article that talks about david cho's background the the shooter yeah. and he he's the son of military you know he's the son of one of these 49ers who mm-hmm. comes to so even though he's born in taiwan he's uh his parents come in 49 and i think his parents were in the military so so he's he's part of what would he probably grew up in one of the what are called military dependent uh, villages, Jinsun, that were um, extremely dilapidated. Uh, I mean, other unless you were a, a, a general or some high-ranking person, 
these were basically mud huts. Uh, so the Taiwanese, Taiwanese phrase to refer to them were tsuliba, like they basically had bamboo, like the cheapest material uh, uh, as fences. It's interesting, by extension, people have referred to the shooter, David Cho, as a second generation of Waisunran. Seeing this whole thing unfold and emerge, I was, and I've always actually wondered about the experience of Waisunran versus Bengshunran, because my family was, yeah, you would consider them Bengshunran, so I don't really know the side of someone who's labeled the Waisunran. What is their experience in Taiwan? Personally, I've heard a lot from the Bengshunran perspective that the Waisunran had many more privileges granted to them by the Kuomintang. But then I've always thought about what's the other side, what happened to the other side, the Waisunran. And obviously there's a lot of conflict, there's a lot of divisions. In some ways they felt marginalized because we have this, the gunman David Cho, how he felt about like the whole Taiwan independence movement. And I know that um, your families are mixed, and so maybe you could speak to that, what you've seen as the range of experience of people who are in this Weishanren label. Because, you know, there's a whole range. There's people who are very privileged, right? And then there's also the average people. Like you mentioned that we're from both from mixed marriages. Um, my mother's side of the family came in 49. My grandfather was a foot soldier for Chiang Kai-shek and had his arm blown off uh, during the Civil War. Mm. And both my mom and her twin brothers were were born in Taiwan, in Hualien in 1950, mm-hmm. basically two years after uh, they, my grandparents had arrived. Okay. And um, they were placed in Hualien because uh, they set up a, uh, a basically a veterans hospital there, um, mm-hmm. and and so yeah, I mean my parents, my 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 mother grew up very poor. It's a complicated story. Both of my uncles ended up leaving Taiwan and never coming back to Taiwan because they felt that they were just discriminated against uh, in in Taiwan uh, by sort of local Taiwanese. Um, my, my uncle tells the story, for example, of passing the bar exam and a, he tried to get a job at what was then the top law firm, uh, mm-hmm. top insurance firm doing law firm, mm-hmm. sort of insurance mm-hmm. law, which was then uh, a Taiwanese company. I don't remember which one he told me once. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the boss flat out saying, oh, you'll you'll never make, uh, he, he was offered the job, but he said, uh, you'll never make a management position because you're a white subject, you know? So, oh, wow. so, I mean, and so he knew that by that time that there, that he had to leave. My, my other uncle um, basically sort of joined a gang of, of, of white subjects people, you know, so, so they, they, so when the stories of the, of the killer uh, came out, I was like, you know, in a different life, I could, I he felt very recognizable to me. Like he could have mm-hmm. been my uncle. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother on the other hand, uh, sort of converted to my father's politics and became very sort of pro Taiwan. So mm-hmm. even though she, um, she no longer identifies as a Chinese person. She identifies as Taiwanese, you know, so, mm-hmm. so the, the different um, trajectories are all quite variable, I think. Yeah. So even just in one family, right? So like even, even in one Weisung family, you have all these different possible outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just to add up to Albert's parallel between his uncles and the sh- gunman when you add different layers of his life so he he lacked a it seems like he lacked community in las vegas whereas albert's uncles ended up in um well at least one uncle ended up in a very taiwanese chinese heavy community 
and and I'm guessing that the shooter consumed a lot of pro-China media, which is incredibly um, anger-mongering and uh, Chinese identity consolidating. Um, for my own family, it's also a mixed marriage. And in this case, my, my mother's family is many generations Taiwanese and my father's generation is Weishengren. And the similarity here is that my mother also converted to my father's politics. So I don't know what's going on here, but gender wise, uh, but she is both identify as, as Chinese and are raised me when, you know, when you're a kid, you don't really think about it, but raised me mm -hmm. to come call me ABC and we call ourselves, uh, went to a Chinese association in Kalamazoo, Michigan. It was only much later until I, when I met Albert that I began thinking about how fluid and expansive Taiwanese is, and it's meant to include and embrace uh, anybody who wants to be embraced by it. And this kind of multicultural, multi-ethnic vision is really exciting, and it's also meant to be in opposition to a Chinese state that homogenizes and that wants to essentially exterminate or at least disenfranchise ethnic and religious minorities. Um, and it's, it's exciting to be in Taiwan during a time when, when this vision is, is being um, realized. Uh, that's too optimistic to say, but when yeah. some progressives are promoting and hoping to expand this multicultural vision, mm -hmm. vision of what Taiwanese means, mm -hmm. It was a little hard for me, you know, on my Facebook feed, there were hardcore leftist Taiwanese nationalists who mm -hmm. were saying if, that if this shooter wants to call himself Chinese, and then he's Chinese. And I'm like, mm -hmm. hey, you're the same Taiwanese Americans who hate being called, uh, who, who hate not being called, recognized as Americans, you know? So, I mean, if you, it's the same parallel, right? If you're a second generation Asian American and people are like, where are you from? Where are you from? Where are you from? And yet you're doing the same thing to a second or third generation Washington. Like, you'll never escape this well of Washington. Even if, even if you're born in Taiwan, we're still going to call you Washington. And it's just, mm -hmm. it would, it would, the equivalent would be always being called Asian, if, even if you're many generations in America. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I think, I don't know. I mean, these issues are complicated. I understand the argument for calling him Chinese. You know, the, uh, the argument is, is, that that was the dominant ideology for 50 years. Right. And, and you, yeah. you, you name that ideology and, and, and it's violent colonialism when you, um, when you, uh, accede to, to his, his self conception, but I don't know. Born in Taiwan, yeah. born in Taiwan, raised in Taiwan. He's yeah. Taiwanese. He can. Yeah. He has to deal with that label, you know. Yeah, I mean, what do you guys think of the whole Washington label? I think that may. I just have problems with that. Maybe we need to put that to rest too. Yeah, I mean, the the hope is, and I think the New York Times article speaks to this too, is that that this was a. a a generational thing that's going to get phased out. Uh, people mm -hmm. no longer think of themselves as Weisungren or Bensungren. But I mean, the the flip side of that is that the fact that somebody's ideology was mobilized to kill somebody means that these divisions are still very much there. Yeah. And um, it's you know any historian will tell you that you know these types of ethnic divisions don't die easily. Mm -hmm. and that they can get reconstituted and re-energized and uh, sort of weaponized at different moments. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I personally am, am, am for also just sort of moving beyond yeah. that phrase. Yeah. But then I can also understand uh, families whose identity are, are around that, right? Where yeah. there is a certain... Uh, whether it's victim identity or a sense of superiority. And that's one thing that has to be mentioned, right? That why Sunrin, what's connected to it is also this idea of prestige and privilege and 
because most of the places in uh, most of the civil servant positions in government and civil servants and bureaucracy and also places at university were uh, dominated by Wysoak families, the military obviously being one uh, that retains retains its uh, mm -hmm. sort of status, right? It's so complex because it's like the Bunsen Run felt disenfranchised by the Weissenrun who a lot of them had these positions of privilege and there was a lot of discrimination, but then they turned around and did the same thing to your uncle, the one that you mentioned, tried to get a job at the insurance company law firm. Further complicating question, of course, is always that the, the political problem with China is mm -hmm. always, always looming there, right? And part of the reason why this, this killer was, you know, weaponized his ideology is, like Michelle said, you know, this incredibly corrosive uh, media that's been heavily subsidized and um, funded by Chinese mm -hmm. funds, but also, you know, this in increasing saber rattling from uh, the PRC. Right. The China funded and pro-China media could be a topic of an entire episode in and of itself. My parents know the victim's family. Um, they were at my uncle's. They knew my uncle, part of went to my uncle, uncle's funeral, the same pastor presided over the funerals in the church. Um, they're all, I mean, the, the Irvine Taiwanese community is, everybody knows everybody. There's an exercise Tai Chi group that my mother and father and sometimes me when I was back would all attend. So my, my parents were actually with me in Taiwan when the victim's father passed away from something separate. So the mother lost her husband and then her son in quick succession, which is just excruciating. And it's interesting, you know, my parents referenced a, a very pro-China friend back in Taiwan who said to them, immediately after the shooting well the presbyterian church they have they have they're they're so bad like implying that that the victims had it coming and i was so disquieted by that perception i mean that's the way i think people try to rationalize people a person tries to rationalize to herself something that's um so violent and senseless but for my parents, who are definitely not pro-DPP people, you know, it's just the violence is, it's terrible. It's a shock. They're putting themselves in the position of the mother and father. They know it. My mother, first, the first one of the things she said to me was like, her best friend is Weishengren, you know, as if she's trying to communicate to me that this is a community that doesn't talk about politics. She's like, we never talked about politics. And I... Um, I thought that was so interesting, just that within a local community, whether you're a Y Shagrin or Ben Shagrin, you're connected by 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 your by your banal sharing of the best restaurant and stock tips and where to, where to go for tacos and um, your connection to potlucks. potlucks, Tai Chi, you know that. There's a, there's a probably a tacit agreement among people who are less close and never talk about politics and 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 that's why it's so important. It was just a reminder of me of how local communities are so important to stave off polarization because my my parents again who are pro KMT folks felt nothing but grief for the victims and felt immediately connected and and cried. Um, Went to the memorial. Went to the mm -hmm. memorial. But then when you read and write about the news, it's all about these divisions that exist. But in Taiwan, we know people live together, have coexist mm -hmm. in spite of political background. And the same mm -hmm. is true in some diaspora communities. Mm -hmm. Is that right, Albert? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Based on what I read, I it seemed like the, the killers, I mean, not to 
you know, excuse anything, but it seemed like his, his life was falling apart. And it seems like, um, also more, a statement on the sort of so social safety net in, in the U S where, I mean, he, he was getting kicked out of his house. Um, it was clear he had some sort of anger issues, domestic violence issues. And, um, but there was just, it seemed like he was extremely isolated and, and then you turn to, um, one in ideology of hate. And then you also turn to, uh, an ideology of violence and, and, and the U S also has ready access to weapons of violence that I think other countries, um, don't have right so it's sort of sort of this this all of these really tragic elements coming together and one thing that still confuses me is why the Taiwanese Presbyterian Church in Irvine um, I think I read some some report that <coughs> that his brother uh, one of his brothers is in Irvine or something but oh. but it still isn't clear to me what the why he chose that particular congregation sure. right mm. But I mean, it also seems like the Irvine Presbyterian Church was the most one of the most successful Presbyterian churches. You point out some important things about David Cho's personal circumstances, how things were unraveling in his personal life with his job and housing situation, and we can't ignore the impact it would have on his state of mind. But that's not to excuse what he did. I thought it was interesting in your article that you wrote this line that says any of us could have become a killer like Cho. And I understand you earlier in the piece, you said that existentially speaking, right, uh, capable of killing or violence and so on. And then, uh, but not all of us could have been a hero like John Cheng, who is the one that um, tried to stop the gunman and ended up. Uh, being killed, but I would I would actually like to think that not only could any of us be a killer or capable of violence under the circumstances, you know, as you mentioned, with all these things in your life falling apart, but I would hope that all of us would have the could also have the capacity capacity to be a hero. When we wrote that line, I thought a lot about circumstances that lead people to hurt and it's mm -hmm. when you're angry what's you're afraid when you feel like you have nothing to lose and i think we've all had that situation or identify with that situation um yeah i yeah i came across this line hurt people hurt people and i just thought like yeah that's so true um, with a lot of the things that we've been seeing with all the gun violence and things like that. And I think what we were also trying to say is that I, I think all of us definitely have the capacity to be a hero, but I think um, it's cir circumstances like this that reflect how rare certain communities are that nurture heroes. And that's what we wanted to sort of honor. And I think um, whether it was his Christian faith or uh, his this sense of a close-knit community. I mean, it's pretty remarkable that this man died going to a church, sacrificing himself at a church that he wasn't even a regular member of. Yeah. And he was only there for his mother because his mother needed to, had hurt his, her, her leg the first, you know, the day before. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, not all of us are lucky enough to live in communities that nurture these types of relationships. And I think mm -hmm. what's one way to think about it is also to think about how can we recreate those bonds, those connections uh, around us and in a way that, you know, create communities that can also nurture this, this feeling of sacrifice, this feeling of, I mean, for lack of a better word, a filiality, which is just a, a sense of obligation to one another um, or a sense of duty um, and just a sense of love. Right. And I think I think it's really um, it's really rare today in our very cynical world to, to find 
stories of people who just do things out of just pure sense of like self-sacrifice, right? I mean, if you if you look at it, you know, all of the stories are, are also just remarking as like, oh, wow, why would this young person sacrifice himself for these older people in this community, right? But, but you know, it's because it's he had that sense of, uh, you know, just duty and, and love to people around him. And, and the question is, how do we, what, what are the roots of that? What are the historical roots, but also what are the, the, the roots of this in his, his person that we can, we can somehow, if we can uncover that, maybe that, that, that would help us to, to give more hope to people around us too. I contrast that with how angry people are at the police officers who mm-hmm. are the opposite of heroes who have total, total cowards. Um, and yet there are people we entrust to take care of us. And so is there something uh, to take Albert's line one, one, you know, one step further? Is there, what is so different about John Chang's community than the police force and its connection to the local community? You know, what, what is happening in, in, in police forces that they don't feel connected enough to the community to think that they're worth protecting. It reminds me of this. A little, yeah, can you speak a little more well, to this? After the Philando Castle killing in Minnesota, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The, you know, where the police officer killed an innocent black guy that they stopped in front of his child, right? There were all these studies that showed that the police officers um, and that could be or don't didn't live in that community they lived mm-hmm. elsewhere in like a richer separate suburb mm-hmm. and so what albert's also speaking to is just we don't live together we're not living together in community and a church is one way to create that um uh nonprofits, associations that try to mediate relationships and and bring people of different classes and backgrounds together to create ways for us to connect to one another whether it's through tutoring or visiting people in prison or delivering food to the homeless i think people are thirsting to, to heal and to help and thirsting to have deeper connections with others and I think there's such cynicism, like like you were referencing, there's such cynicism about the possibility of those connections or such fear of being or of appearing as a savior or as trying to make yourself feel better. But then I think the people who really inspire us are those who are just like don't care. They're just they're just create their own ways to form these connections. Um, and and I'm, I'm really, I'm really inspired by by those those actions and that that mm-hmm. fearlessness. Mm-hmm. I, I think you point out something very important: is the the sense of community and the human connection. Um, because, I, like you said, the, uh, these police officers, perhaps because they didn't live in the community and they didn't identify with it, so there's a disconnect. And I. Um, found that echoed in an interview that I had with um, Sergeant Stephen Lee. I think he said something about like it's really important to have um, police officers from the community or at least to be trained to understand the community and the culture there. Um, And then uh, it's so important to have the sense of community because as we talked about um, uh, people who live in Irvine, like even though they have different um, political opinions or whatever, they had the sense of the community and the connections so that um, it wasn't about the political division, but they all knew each other um, and they were able to coexist in the way that your parents reacted. Um, so there's something about the human connection and the um, community that maybe we're so disconnected from that. And um, that's why these misunderstandings or things happen. I think that's absolutely right. I guess just one thing that I I, I wanted to add one thing that, I mean, we think of Taiwan now and we think of it as such a peaceful place. It's like this, one of the safest, uh, one of of the richest countries in the world, um, um, very clean. 
But one of the things that people don't um, tend to forget is that we're only 20 or 30 years removed from extreme, like violence spilling onto the streets on a pretty common, like pretty regular everyday existence. Um, there are massive clashes between protesters and the authoritarian government, um, organized crime uh, that actually still has a lot of power in Taiwan. Um, but also just, you know, we're only, we're less than a generation removed from people who live daily under po incredible political fear and repression. And so when we think about people like David Cho, that's what we need to think about, which is that, you know, he, he was somebody who was raised in a culture of violence and a culture of fear and a culture of fear mongering. Yeah. During the martial law era. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, one way to think of it, of course, is to think of it in terms of Bunsu and Waisung, you know, this, you know, this age old, well, not age old, but this, you know, decades long conflict between mm -hmm. ethnic groups. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think the more, um, more, I mean, productive maybe is the right, maybe not the right word, but a, a different way of thinking about it is to think about how, in a way, so many people were brutalized by an authoritarian regime. Mm -hmm. And and that's what we need to always keep our yeah. eyes on the prize and to, mm -hmm. to, to, to sort of criticize, which is... Mm -hmm. Um, right. And, and this so is, there this are is a lot of victims on all sides all around. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is where the language of sort of the contemporary woke culture is actually very helpful, where you, you, you identify some systemic problem and say, like, this is the thing. And, you know, whether we agree it's white supremacy or whatever, and to say, like, everybody is sort of in a way victimized and they, they act out of this systemic. Mm. Um, oppression mm -hmm. and um, and again not to, to sort of rationalize away or explain away uh, David Cho's act but I think in terms of thinking about how we can repair uh, these tensions or these divisions mm -hmm. that we hope are going away but one way is to okay so how we're you know so-called Waisung communities also mm -hmm. victimized by this regime mm -hmm. so that they, in a way, internalize this culture of violence. And, um, and one of, you know, so one of the things that oftentimes isn't mentioned within our histories is that there were a lot of Waisung, very heroic Waisung people who were involved in the early Dawai, like uh, sort of pro-democracy movements. And it was a inter-ethnic, multi-ethnic uh, collaboration between indigenous activists, uh, Waisung activists, Benson activists, Hakka activists, uh, you know, like uh, labor activists, feminists, and, and they were all united to resist some sort of political oppression or authoritarian government. And then it's, it's, it's sort of sadly when democracy comes that these, these, these groups start to splinter because they're, you know, fighting for some sort of political recognition mm -hmm. in, in, in a democratic space. Right. But I think, I think uh, whenever uh, the temptation is to, to, to go towards revision, uh, you know, division, there's, there's also moments where you can recapture when there was a multi-ethnic, uh, multi sort of class uh, coalition that was being built that later fractures in certain ways, but, but for, for at least a certain moment in the eighties, there were, they, they were sort of stitched together. I think that's sort of always a dream, at least I keep pushing for. We could even say that the quote unquote state violence or divisions were played out in 2014 during the sunflower movement, because we know that there is also the attempted occupation of the executive yuan, which ended up ended violently. So it really wasn't that long ago. 
And then there were a lot of other disturbing things that happened after that. There were overseas students who had expressed support for the Sunflower Movement who I heard were harassed and like different people were harassed. So it actually wasn't really that long ago that we've seen some of this as we see from the U.S. and different countries around the world, like democracy is a constant uh constantly under development <laughs> it's always evolving thank you so much for your time um want to really yeah thank you for uh, sharing your perspectives and this dialogue and um, shedding some more light on what's happened recently thanks so much for having us felicia and thanks yeah. for your awesome podcast thanks for all that you're doing I've been speaking with Michelle Kuo and Albert Wu about their weekly newsletter, Abroad in Apple Road, and the May 15th shooting at the Irvine Taiwanese Presbyterian Church. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATOA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATOA was founded in 1988 to evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity to oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality, to fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs, to contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan, to reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NATWA, visit their website www.natwa.com Now it's time for you to show us some love. We just found out that you can rate us on Spotify. Or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Audible, leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.